want to welcome you to week 10 of Revelation and the End Times. We are looking at chapter 10 through chapter 11. This will be the last study for 2020. Love for you to join us on January 13th, 2021, as we begin with chapter 12. We are in chapter 9 still, and we are going to start with verse 13. This is the sixth trumpet. We are going through all the different trumpets and the, the seven angels. We get to the sixth trumpet. We won't get to the seventh trumpet until chapter 11. So there's some things that happen in here and chapter 10 that... Um, other things are going on, and we're gonna we're gonna encounter another figure, and we'll talk about that in chapter ten here in just a moment. But this is what it says, verse thirteen to the end of the chapter. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, "Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates." So the four angels were released who had been held ready for the hour, the day, the month, the year to kill a third of humankind. The number of troops of the cavalry was 200 million. I heard their number. And this was how I saw the horses in my vision. The riders wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, the heads of... The horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of humankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. Their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they inflict harm. The rest of humankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands and give up worshiping demons or idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk and they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their fornication or their thefts so they're okay so more destruction more death those type of things again this is apocalyptic literature this is a journey that is symbolic for um, spiritual forces fighting, spiritual death that is occurring within individuals that's real. Um, they will be, as we just came from in this chapter where we talked about the bottomless pit, this is the place of sort of destruction, That's this place that's far from this place that's far from God. Um, and again, this is all spiritual symbolis- symbolism that's going on here. And it's hard to take, now we look at this stuff as a Western mind and we think to ourselves, hey, you know, what are these things? Are these particular battles? Who's, who's gonna, you know, is China gonna have 200 million soldiers, blah, blah, that sort of thing. And, and we wanna be literal. That's just the way we are with our Western mind. And again, 
we want to be literal too because we are been influenced in modern age by the interpretation Darby's interpretation of things and the more modern interpretation by the dispensationalist and so if you were a first century reader if you're a hebrew reader of this text you would not go in that direction you would go hmm that is talking about some forces of evil that's talking about some judgment those are things that I just don't want to be a part of. Again, this genre of apocalyptic literature. Now, the sixth angel blows this trumpet. Again, then when this trumpet is blown, there's four angels that have been released who are bound by the great Euphrates River. And the no one knows who these angels are. I don't, I don't find that in any of the studies that I've gone through. The key, though, I think, is, is we've been talking about the judgment upon Gentiles, but also the judgment upon God's sort of Israel, the chosen people, Jerusalem, is that these angels were outside of the promised land because the Euphrates River was outside the promised land. So you can, again, see this image that judgment is coming to Israel or coming to Jerusalem or even coming to God's people within the sector of uh, Jerusalem or this promised land from enemies outside, uh, Gentile enemies. And we do see that. And if you're a first century reader, you're reading this, you're going, yeah, I totally see that. Rome continues to be our enemy. Even the Jews are our enemy. And you can see uh, this is that that's the sim symbolism here. Um, and I think that the Euphrates River is an interesting little tie-in to that. Now, verse 16 says, There are numbers of troops beyond counting. I mean, 200 million, that is never going to actually probably happen. And so, again, a number so vast, so big symbolism there that this is a powerful force that is going to be unleashed or has been unleashed on the earth and there's going to be death there's going to be destruction that reality is bad things happen and bad things happen to good people bad things happen to spiritual people who have faith in christ all the stuff that these first century christians need to hear and i would say even we need to hear and so it's very relevant to us as well um, any any thoughts on that? I got some more for the rest of that part of that chapter. But anybody have any questions, thoughts? Um, it's it's some weird stuff. Um, so you have this death and destruction. Yes, uh, again, yes, that is happening. Is this a warning? Yes. Remember, apocalyptic literature is a warning. Please repent. Please stay faithful. Please stay true to what you know. So this is spiritual warning. Please do not do what others are doing. And even in the midst of what is going on, bad things happening, natural disasters, wars, evil people at work, all that stuff ties into really the, the verse 20 here where you have the rest of humankind as well. Um, people are left, and this is a spiritual issue, but they still don't repent. We hear that. They do not repent of the works of their hands. Repentance 
is, is possible. There's a call to repentance, and this literature wants that to happen, but they don't do it. And we, we see that around us all the time. I mean, I do. I, I feel like I see, again, evil exists. Spiritual battles are going on. There, there are bad things that happen to people. And this is a call to stop living for yourself and live for Christ. But even in the midst of the world in which we live, people still go through all these ter- this turmoil and tragedy and tribulations and things like that, and they don't ever turn to God for healing, uh, restoration, hope, faith. We see it all the time, um, see it every day. So people are still worshiping false gods, false idols, uh, worshiping money, worshiping power, and worshiping um, lust, whatever it is. Now, we deal with sins in our life, and thank God we have Christ who has died for our sins. And so that's how we would translate it as spiritual people. But there are people that do not know Christ, and they have flat out had the invitation to know God, and they choose to do their own thing. Spiritually, how God handles that in the end, that is up to him. But we will see some imagery here that um, they are distant from God. They are, they are cast into this farness away from God. So uh, any thoughts, conversations, anything you've heard, anything on that? It's a lot of stuff. <clears throat> okay. Um Again, we, we are kind of repeating ourselves. We're repeating the imagery here, repeating what these symbols mean to us. We were talking about with the uh, men earlier this morning that bringing in the relevance for this, just let me remind you, if you were reading the book of Revelation all at one sitting, you would be waiting for something good to happen in the end. You would be like, just remain faithful. Just remain faithful. Come on, remain faithful. Either you're cheering them on, the people you're reading about, or you're cheering yourself on. And then God comes in the end. God wins. Everything's restored, and it's beautiful, okay? We're not doing that. We're not reading it all in one setting and so or sitting. So basically, we wonder, well, why is this chapter? What is this message to us? And so it's similar. It's the repeated thing. Hey, stay faithful even in the midst of destruction, even in the midst of evil, even in the midst of everything that's going on. So sounds like I'm repeating myself because we kind of are, okay? The images are very similar, judgment and things like that. So let's go to verse. Uh, let's go to chapter ten, verse one, and I'm going to kind of walk us through these instead of just reading this. But I'm going to walk us through. So it says, "And I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven." Now this is not an a- another angel that blows a trumpet because we're going to get that in chapter eleven. This is something different, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He held a little scroll open in his hand. Uh, You could say, who is it that actually opened the scroll most recently? And that's Christ, right? Setting his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. He gave a great shout like a lion roaring and when he shouted, the seven thunders sounded. So, who is this? Who is this angel if we were trying to figure it out? Many think it would be it is Christ. Um, why would we say that? Why, why does it need to be? Why wouldn't they just say it's the lamb coming down? Um, why would they call him an angel? Those type of things. It, 
so we don't really know who this is, but we do see some divine attributes in the verse 1. He's wrapped in a cloud. A lot of times we see God wrapped in clouds, especially the Old Testament when, when God has a pillar a pillar of cloud that kind of rests outside the tent of meeting with Moses. Uh, he's also, this person has a rainbow over his head. You can look back uh, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, and you can see that God's throne is, throne is, is surrounded by a rainbow, right? You might remember that image. This person has a face like the sun and also stands on sea and land. Um, almost a symbol for authority over earth, you know, and the one we know has authority over earth is, is God, ultimately. This is a big God. So, am I saying this is Christ? I don't know. I mean, no one really knows, but we can look at these attributes and go, wow, it's, it sure seems like that. Now, what does that tell us? How does it go on? Verse 4, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. It's an interesting encounter because John is supposed to be writing everything down. He was told to write everything down and share it with people, and now he's told not to write it down. He's asked not to record it. Now, there's a time in the Apostle Paul's life in which he encounters what people call like the third heaven. He goes up to the third heaven. He's, he's raptured into some sort of heavenly place in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, and it tells us about how um, Paul is like, he's, he can't share that, I guess. You know, he doesn't, he, he's not supposed to share that, and he can't really tell of that experience. So you have a very similar experience that happened with the Apostle Paul as well. And then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven, Again, the size and the power of God, whether this is Christ, this is God himself, this is, this is a powerful God. Again, somebody who, somebody who is more powerful than Rome, again. Also, uh, and then it goes on, and I swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what it uh, is, uh, is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is to blow his trumpet, the mystery of God will be fulfilled as he announced to his servants the prophets. So, just some more verbiage there. Um, if anybody has anything they want to filter in in those two verses, you, anybody have anything that they've read or seen or heard? I don't have anything special. Um, it's just a message for everybody, basically, is what it's saying. So verse 8, Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. I think there's an interesting uh, point to this. This is a sort of a revelation, you could spiritual revelation. So here's John, and he is witnessing this, and then he's told to go take something, take this scroll. Um, we're always called to own a revelation from God, 
or you could say take a revelation from God. Um, we're never, it's never forced on us. And we look back in our lives, we look back in our spiritual lives, there are times when God was speaking to us. He was trying to give us a revelation, and it probably went right over our heads, went right by us. We weren't paying attention to it. I don't know about you, but I know in my life, there have been plenty of times I look back and I go, well, why didn't I just learn that lesson when I was 20, you know? Or why didn't I learn that lesson earlier in my life? Well, maybe you've never experienced it before, but also maybe God shared something with you or wanted to, wanted to bring a revelation in your life, but ultimately you just ignored it or sin made you ignore it. And so I think this is an interesting picture where John is asked to go take the revelation. He needs to be ready for it. It's not forced on him. He's not a robot. He's going and he's taking it. And sometimes revelations in our life are sweet. We're going we're gonna to see that sweet. And then also sometimes they're bitter. They're hard. They take sacrifice, you know. And then other times they're, they're sweet and sour, you know, or sweet and bitter all at the same time. So any thoughts on that? Just the idea of uh, revelation and what God has revealed to us in our life and how we've taken it in and and how we've ignored it sometimes in our life. Sometimes it's sweet, sometimes it's bitter. Anybody have any thoughts on that? <clears throat> All right. Good deal. Marty, yeah, think, go ahead. I think for me, when I ask God, what is it you would have me do? Mm -hmm. I think I have a standing order to take the gospel. Yeah. And, and spread the gospel. Point. So that's definitely a standing order from God mm -hmm. for me. Yeah, and, and that's excellent. But we have to take it, right? So it's a standing order to take it and do it, or we can just sit there and ignore it and not use it. So, um, again, this is spiritual stuff, and hey, I, you know, I'm reading this going, hey, John, John got invited to take something from God. You know, I... I want to take something. I mean, I want to be a part of that. I want to be faithful enough to where I can take that and use it, whatever it is, you know, that type of stuff. So, And sometimes it's sweet and sometimes it's bitter. And that's what we're going to hear here. Um, then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel and stand out on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat. It will be bitter to your stomach, but sweet as honey to your mouth. Again, that's that sometimes revelations of God in our life are very sweet, but they're also bitter, you know, because we have to know we have to change. We have to give something up. We have to, we have to sacrifice something. And then it goes on. So I took that scroll um, uh, from the hand of the angel, ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I ate it, my stomach was made bitter. Then they said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So this is a actual act of prophecy, which is, or a prophetic act. And we just don't think that way. We don't talk that way. And so when I explain this, I'm thinking, you know, how's this going to sound to people? But John performs what they call a prophetic act by taking something from God, by eating it, okay? And then it says you must then go out and prophesy again to, to others. Now, 
this is a prophetic act in John's life. There are uh, prophets that have committed prophetic acts. Ezekiel had some similar thing where he was told to eat a secret scroll. Okay, I mean, so he performed a prophetic act knowing that when he digests the revelation of God within his soul, within his life, and then it's going to be bitter, it's also going to be sweet, it's also going to be knowledge, not so much, I mean, it's secret, but it's like it's secret to our hearts, and thus we're supposed to then go and do something with it, proclaim it to people. Ezekiel chapter 3 talks about that. Um, also, Jesus performed prophetic acts. Yes, Jesus performed miracles and things like that, but he also performed prophetic acts. And some say, and you could classify prophetic act of clean, cleansing the temple, cleaning the temple out was a prophetic act, that, that the temple was dirty, the temple was not needed anymore. Ultimately, we hear that we are the temple of God, right? We are the possessors of the Holy Spirit in faith. When we have faith in, in, in Jesus. Also, Jesus performed a prophetic act when he cursed the barren fig tree. That was a prophetic act. That was a sort of judgment upon Israel, judgment upon the, the temple or the, the sacrificial system. Uh, that something was corrupted, something wasn't right anymore, and it was going to shrivel up and it was going to die. And which it, we understand sort of spiritually, it did do that, right? Um, and uh, just some weird imagery. Uh, we eat something, it goes into our stomach, and it, and it causes uh, you know, our stomachs to be bitter. We've heard about that wormwood um, where it, there was bitterness with this plant wormwood. Uh, the star that fell, so there's some similar imagery there. Also in Numbers chapter 5. There's this reference to, uh, I think I said it before, about the wife who maybe is, her husband is suspicious that maybe she committed adultery. She's supposed to go to the priest. You can read all this. I, I think it's weird uh, for sure, but supposed to like drink some holy water. And if her stomach turns sour or bitter, then ultimately she is guilty. And if not, then she's not guilty, that type of thing. And so uh, there's imagery in the Old Testament, again, recasting some of these images that we see in the Old Testament. Any closing thoughts about uh, chapter 10? Some weird, kind of weird stuff. Um, <clears throat> okay, well, let's jump into chapter 11. There's plenty here. Let me say some things about chapter 11 that, that are important to before we move into that. Uh, some say that this is the most important chapter and one of the most difficult chapters to deal with or to interpret. Um some, if you are um, part of the dispensationalist theory or the Darby understanding of things, um, just for all of us who either you still are with that idea of things or you hear, hear other people are with that, this chapter is the summary for the rest of the book for them. And... Um, it's not what actually... It's like the summary. It's like... Um, Chapter 11 shows what the rest of the book is going to tell us, 
okay? Now, could we say that if we don't um, sort of go with Darby's understanding? I, I don't know if we can say that, but there is a little bit of a, a lot of things happen. You can look at it as a summary, and then you can actually see some of these little pieces are actually happening later in the book, okay? So what do I mean by that? Well, verse 1 through and 2 is there's a measuring. There's a sealing of the temple, and we're going to see that in a minute. There's the two witnesses that come on the scene. Uh, verses 7 through 10, people say this is the emergence of the Antichrist because somebody emerges and kills these two witnesses. Um, we have other interpretation and biblical understanding of that, but if you if you want to know what other people might be thinking or uh, you had this understanding of things, verse 11 through 13 is where those two witnesses, we will hear of them being raised from the dead, and Jews actually begin to be converted because they see this. And then verse 14 through 19 is sort of the sketch of the final triumph of Christ, this Armageddon battle, okay? And so we're going to see that as we read chapter 11. We're going to see a little bit of the summary of some of these things. Now, if you want to have that viewpoint that all these things are literal things that will happen in the future and, and these things are going to you know, show up, you will see a summary, but again, the rest of the book would play all that out. Okay, um, so let's look at this because we get some timetables here. Uh, even though we talked about the tribulation is the age of the church, we get 42 months here. We get a three and a half year time period. And so this is, again, you, you see these time periods pop up and you see where people get the, where they try to put all this together and make seven years and, and different things like that. So let me look at verses one through... Um, maybe we'll go through eight. It says, Then I was given a measuring rod. Again, this is still all a scene apart from any trumpet going on. And so John's, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Come and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample over the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days, wearing sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Anyone who wants to harm them must be killed in this manner. They have authority to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street and the great of the great city that is pro uh, prophetically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So I'm going to just end there because there's a lot of imagery going on. Verse 1, 
there's this rod, a measuring rod. A measuring rod was about six to eight feet, okay? Usually like a reed of some sort that was used to measure things. So that's helpful for us to understand. And then in verse two, we get some timetables here. We get 42 months, right? Uh, which is three and a half years. We get 1,260 days, uh, which is another three and a half years, those type of things. So Revelation chapter 11, verse 2, also Revelation 12, 6, speaks of some timetables. And it's interesting that if, if you, again, I'm trying to, these two different thoughts. So if you have the sort of Darby's more modern interpretation of things, you're like, aha, you said there wasn't seven years and ever talked about, this is it, you know, this is how people translate that. Um, but then you also go, well, what if I don't even think that way because it's not really a biblical understanding of things for many reasons before I even get to this part. What would this mean? What, what exactly image is this painting for us? Well, there is an image. There's a literal image that actually did happen. And in A.D. 67, you had uh, Vespasians or Vespasians, whatever, his legions that basically invaded the Holy Land and invaded Jerusalem and destroyed it. And it was a three and a half uh, year period there from AD 67 to AD 70 and in the summer is when Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed. So you literally had actually a 42 month period where it says and they will walk and they will trample, right? They will trample over the what? Holy city, Jerusalem. So there actually was this that actually happened. Um, who are these two witnesses? Again, apocalyptic literature, um, did Moses, people think, well, the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. The, the prophet, uh, Elijah, and the giver of the law, Moses. Are they them? Who knows, right? We, do, we don't fully know or not. We can, we can look at some of these references and go, oh, sure, maybe. But did they show up the summer before Jerusalem was destroyed? Never heard that, right? We don't have history of that. Does this need to be a literal thing? No. Plus, we're, this is probably a writing almost 20 years after all that happened. So this is retrospective, looking back, going, what once was and thought to be holy and thought to be the center of all spirituality for Christians, for Jews, those type of things, is gone now. And so that is not the power thing. And first of all, these were Gentiles that ultimately did this. And so there's judgment upon not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Um, so there's some cool stuff here too with the number 42, because we see numbers being so important in Revelation. Let's think back to actually Matthew's genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, in verses 1 through 17, there's this genealogy of Jesus, and it's actually 42 generations. Can you believe that? Isn't that crazy how numbers match up? Now you're thinking to yourself, and I'm thinking to myself, 
Why is it 42? Okay, you got 42 generations. You got three lists of 14. Um, how would that tie into 42 here? Well, it's been proposed, and I, and I think it's probably an interesting theory, and I would say I, I really like it, is that the message here, that if you are an early Christian or you were part of the church, is the church doesn't need to wait 42 generations anymore. You only need to wait 42 months. Okay, what does that mean? Well, God will save the church out of the tribulation. God saved the church out of this horrible tribulation that happened in 67 to 70 AD, right? The end of Rome's, uh, or the, Rome's destruction of Judea and Jerusalem has happened, and ultimately it will result in the establishment of the church, not, not the church being destroyed, but the church then scattering throughout the nations. That's actually might have been, people say, the event that scattered the church. Like the early church at Jerusalem was hunkered down there. Paul actually went back to Jerusalem and talked to, to Peter and James and, and all them. And, and, you know, Jesus said, hey, now go to all the nations. And a lot of people look back spiritually and they go, they weren't going. They were, Paul was going, Barnabas was going, but not a whole lot of people were going until Jerusalem was destroyed. And then all of a sudden, the church scatters among the nations. You have, it's being taken to the Gentiles, it's being taken to the Jews, it's being taken to all people, through Paul and through all of the apostles. So I, I thought that was interesting, but they didn't have to wait for 42 more generations because the Christ was already here, and they were empowered by the Christ. And thus, during these 42 months, it's symbolically looking backwards, going, okay, we're, 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 we're set on our way. God has commissioned us to go. So if you buy into that, good. I like it. I mean, I, I'm cool with it. Um, do we know that's the answer to everything? I don't know. You know, uh, I wish I could say that, but I don't know. Any thoughts, anything hit y'all that from that? Anything about numbers? <clears throat> All right. Well, um, let me see. The other thing. Uh, oh, when they have find uh, they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. In verse seven, the beast is Rome. That is. You can't really argue that. I mean, it is Rome. I mean, you can't argue against that. And so Rome will destroy the nation of Israel and basically did. Christians are the new temple of, the, of God's Spirit. And so there's no more need for Jerusalem. There's no more need for the temple, all that stuff. We hear in verse 8, the great city. We know it's Jerusalem because we hear Jesus, the Lord, was crucified there. Where What are these references to Sodom and Egypt? And that's interesting because that's actually, um, scholars would say, a spiritual uh, tie-in to who Jesus is. Jesus is uh, the new Moses, okay? 
That's why we would tie in Egypt, even Sodom, like the, uh, the, the people were taken out, right? Um, and before the city was destroyed, certain people were taken out. In Egypt, the slaves were taken out, but the new Moses leading God's people to salvation. So again, a tie-in to who the Christ was here. Um, <clears throat> all right, I'm trying to keep all this ahead of us. Let's let's uh, read. Let's keep going forward. Verse nine: For three and a half days, members of the peoples and the tribes and the language and nations will gaze on their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. So, we have these witnesses. Um, we literally, in our mind, are trying to say, "Well, this is weird." We, they're actually gazing upon these dead people. Um, we can also think spiritually that there is this um, three and a half is the number seven broken, right? Seven is the perfect number, the number of completeness and wholeness. And so for three and a half days, okay, or a time period of three and a half, there's sadness, um, there's mourning, there is oppression, there is, there is like we heard earlier, you know, like the, the, the sun became dark like sackcloth, you know, there's mourning going on. So there's this three and a half, you know, day, year, whatever period of sadness and oppression. You could say that that's true. Maybe, you know, three and a half days of destruction for the, you know, three and a half years of destruction upon uh, Jerusalem and the Holy Land and, and, and all that sort of thing. So it all kind of fits in there again, apocalyptic literature and there's some weird images altogether. But it says, and the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to the inhabitants of the earth. So you, you've got, you know, this, this spiritual thing that has been wiped out that was a symbol of God, this temple and this holy city, and ultimately people are gloating. People are gloating over this sort of thing. The Gentiles, the, the, the beast, Rome is gloating over. They're, they have victory. They have Nike. They're, they, they've taken it to this pesky Jerusalem and the Holy Land and these Jews, okay? And maybe even some Christians along the way. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and those who saw them were terrified. This is where I think you got to go back, and you have to think about Christ being this sort of Savior and a spiritual picture of Christ now moving in, and people gloating over him, and, and he was in the tomb or whatever it is, and then ultimately he was resurrected. Now, for the church, the church wasn't wiped out. The church was then set afoot and ablaze to move throughout all the nations. The church would rise again. God's people would rise again. Um, just because Rome was gloating over what they had done to the Holy Land or the Holy City or even maybe Christians at that time, the church was not dead. The church was still, with, you know, as Christ said, I'm going to establish my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So um, 
Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while the enemies watched them. Again, the church rising, even martyrs rising, all this you know, spiritual symbolism going on. At the moment, at that moment, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now we do see a little bit of difference here in the reaction of all of this destruction, the reaction of the testimony of the church, right? These witnesses that the, the church would not die, the church would rise up in the power of Christ. And then what happens? We see actually people come to faith. People respond with faith and with worship. And these folks are the Gentiles, these folks are the Jews, right? And they're all united in the church. They're all united in Christ. It's an interesting, cool picture there. I don't know. Anybody have any comments, thoughts on any of that? I know this is a lot. Uh, Pastor Martin, Yes, go um, ahead. This is Pam Dixon. Hey, Pam. Um, I'm trying to... Um, to understand, I guess maybe, um, mm -hmm. uh, so you're saying all of this has, has already happened uh, with the two witnesses and with all of the information you just said, all of this has already happened. This is not um, something that is going to happen and the two witnesses and, and, and what they did for all those days. Um, Correct. This has already happened. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Okay. Again, uh, Pam, we wouldn't think that this would be futuristic at all unless we, we went with Darby's understanding, more modern, not traditional or biblical, but more modern interpretation of the coming of Christ. You see where I'm... So, okay. The foundation, yeah, I know it's hard, and I would say this, I would always say this, I, I agree, um, it's, it's an interesting, I would, I would say this, is this possible that something like this will happen in the future? Totally. I would never take that away from God. Um, could there literally be two witnesses, like, I mean, that show up? Sure. I mean, really, I, I mean, I believe that that's possible. I would never take that away from God. Um, and, and maybe he can use something like that, right? So that might happen. Um, I think symbolically, I think it's helpful for us to understand that symbolically, okay, yeah, literally that could happen in the future, but symbolically it kind of did happen. Like, or um, literally it might have happened in the past too. So symbolically we can think, God's church will always rise out of the persecution. God's church will always rise out of even whoever the enemies are that try to dis destroy it, even the beast who comes from the, out of the bottomless pit. Is that, is that good? Does that kind of work with you too on that, Pam? Because I agree with you. I mean, yeah. 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 It's, it's just that first of all, I don't even yeah. know who, well, I've never studied Darby. Right. I've studied right. the Word. Sure. Mm -hmm. I've studied sure. Revelation. In fact, I think Revelation right. is probably, I love every book of the Bible. Sure. But I think this is probably my mm -hmm. favorite. Only, 
even through the darkness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's my yeah, favorite because that's it's great. A, to me, Revelation is a book of victory. Yes, you know, we right. See it through, you know, mm-hmm. and so, um, yeah. and I guess reading it, and I've read it over and over, mm-hmm. I, I, I look at it, uh, to me, I look at it almost literal. As I read mm-hmm. the word, I look at it, now, I know there's some things I don't understand about it. Sure. Uh, it's very hard to to even imagine um, all of this going on. But because we are the church, right. I don't think that the church, the Holy Spirit and the church won't be here when some of these things are happening. Correct. I look at it right. like God still trying mm-hmm. for those who are, who are, I'm not the book, but those who are left on earth. Sure. Um, they a lot of them will change their mind uh or they won't change their mind mm-hmm. about who god and christ is so yep. when i read right this, you know i'm thinking that this has not happened yet mm-hmm. uh, and uh but it will happen mm-hmm. uh, but the church will be gone we we who are believers mm-hmm. in christ jesus uh will have been taken away mm-hmm. um uh you know, from yeah. all this destruction. Okay. And those who are left mm-hmm. will also turn, some will turn to Christ. Right. Because especially when I think about mm-hmm. when when the passage talks about the martyrs under the throne, they said, well, how long will we have to endure this? Mm-hmm. You know, and just for a little while, because God never wants anybody to mm-hmm. be uh, destroyed. You know, he wants all to come to the knowledge. Mm-hmm. But as we know, all will not come. We can look at the world now and see all people have not turned to Christ. Right. Have not turned to that's, God. That's why, that's why I would say that this has happened and it is happening and it will happen. I mean, it's spiritually, it's always happening. So, But again, that's different viewpoints. Um, we've tried to establish that that's not the biblical understanding um people going to have those understandings um but that's not the more traditional biblical understanding so um it's more the fictitious understanding you know that comes from the left behind series and things like that so some of that is is where that's why we got to talk about symbolism and what does this mean now could god use some of these images and some of these things in the future of course he's using them now i mean there's famine now there's wars now uh, and that's where i'm kind of getting at is all this stuff a lot of this stuff is constantly happening to the church it's constantly happening to gen you would say gentiles jews church whatever it is it's happening to all people and people aren't repenting um, people don't seek god even in their suffering you know there's a lot of that going on constantly so um well let's look at Verse 14, because it basically says the second woe has passed. The third woe is coming very soon. So you can, you're like, wow. I mean, that was pretty crazy stuff, um, you know. Uh, and now there's another one coming as well. And then we get the seventh trumpet that is blown. So then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Um, then the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. And uh, 
singing, we give you thanks, Lord God Almighty, who are and who were, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. So, let me kind of end right there. Um, we have the seventh trumpet. Spiritually, as we look at this, this makes total sense, okay? And why does it make total sense? Because it is the new age of salvation has been born in Jesus. We would all affirm that. When Christ died on the cross, Christ was resurrected. He establishes not only his church, who are we are his church, but faithful people who believe in him. But then he has he has founded the age of salvation. And so right here, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. So this is a new age. This is a new dawn. This has happened, you know, and, and things are, we hear right here, oh my goodness, then the, what's the reaction of these 24 elders? Well, the 24 elders represent Jews and Gentiles. They represent the world. They represent the completeness of the faithfulness of people we've talked about. These are a representation of all the faithful people. And so, we would say, well, it's, everything's combined. Everybody's brought. To, they all worship God. They all worship Christ the King who will reign over the earth through his church. Christ is reigning right now through the message of the gospel with his, through the church. I mean, we are his witnesses, right? We are the people that bring the gospel to people, the good news. And this will happen until he comes again right? Now, we get into some terminology there where you, some people would talk about this is like that thousand year reign. This is the end of the millennium happens here because we're about to get the last judgment. That's where I said at the beginning of chapter 11, before we started it, it's a sort of a summary of the rest of the book. And even in the Darby's dispensationalist idea of things, it's a short summary of what will happen in the future and the rest of the book as well. But it's interesting, the seventh trumpet, because the seventh trumpet is an important trumpet, especially in tr Jewish tradition, okay, that it um, proclaimed the uh, new year. It proclaimed the Feast of the Trumpets, actually. And so this is what happens after he blows this trumpet. Not death and destruction, but actually worship. Because a proclamation comes that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. It's a proclamation of good news. It's trumpeted out into the world. So... Uh, pretty cool stuff there, I think. that That's a cool image to end with. Now, let me kind of keep going on. The nations raged, right? I mean, the nations constantly are raging, and they will in the future. But your wrath has come, and a time for judging the dead, for the rewarding your servants and the prophets and the saints and all who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. We get a 
brief picture of really of judgment, um, last judgment, uh, end of millennium judgment, um, and we get the full glory of God in verse 14, or sorry, 19. Uh, we get the full glory of God revealed, right? Uh, the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. Um, many, if you want to look for a symbol there for the ark of the covenant, is this literally the ark that like Moses and all them created? Or what does that mean? Well, who would be the vessel of God, the very presence of God. That's Jesus, right? Um, so have we seen the Ark of the Covenant fully revealed? Of course we have. We've seen His Ark fully re you know, revealed in Jesus Christ. He's the full revelation of God. Now, if you were more on the Catholic side of things, you can, and we're going to wrap up here, but... If you're more on the Catholic side of things, the Ark of the Covenant could be a picture of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus. She was the, 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 uh, the vessel that held the Messiah and ultimately gave birth to the human Jesus. Now, I kind of go with the whole Jesus and the full revelation, the Ark of the Covenant is Him. Or you could say, um, well, we're about to get into a woman clothed with the sun. Uh, again, you could tie in Mary there if you're more on the Catholic side. I, I would tie that into the church, the bride of Christ, right? Um, now that we have seen the full glory of God in Jesus and we have faith, now we are the bride of Christ. And so we're going to see that here in uh, chapter 12. Any closing thoughts, comments? Again, a little bit of a summary of the rest of the book. Um, if you do, you feel those things are futuristic. Sure, that's possibility. Um, you know, but we're looking at symbolism here and uh, what probably happened in the past and what um, happened in the present and the future. So, anybody have anything? Okay. All right. Well. Um, thank you again uh, for joining the party, and we will be back in January with chapter 12. So we're basically uh, halfway through uh, the book of Revelation, and uh, the fun will continue. Um, actually, I'll close with this uh, verse uh, in chapter 12. As we move towards Christmas, we do need to remember that Mary was the very vessel that God used to birth himself into the world and so um, this woman is uh, you know uh, you could say uh, that we encounter in chapter 12 is could be Mary as a symbol of birthing Christ into the world but also the church the bride but all divine beauty was upon this this person 